91.3 KBCS, Music and Ideas, listener-supported radio from Bellevue College. We commemorate February 19, 1942, the day President Franklin Delano Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066, authorizing U.S. government to forcibly remove and incarcerate people of Japanese descent from the West Coast. Tommy Keda, founding executive director of the Densho Project, sits down with KBCS's Yuko Kadama. So tell me about the roots of the Densho Project. When did it start and how did it start? So Densho started over 24 years ago now. It was a grassroots volunteer project in the Seattle community. And I had recently left Microsoft and the community reached out to me and said, you know, we're, we're interested in this project. And I was a little confused why they would want someone with a technology background involved. And the reason they wanted me involved was the group had heard about a project in California called the Shoa Project. And this was a project started by Steven Spielberg after he had done the movie Schindler's List. And the Shoa Project was documenting Holocaust survivors, and they were doing video-recorded oral histories digitizing them and then making them available to to museums. And so the group in Seattle thought it'd be interesting to get someone who understood technology involved. And so I went down to California, visited the Shoah Project, and this was in, what, 1995, 1996. And, And I was sort of blown away by what they were doing. They were interviewing tens of thousands of Holocaust survivors in different languages, video recording each interview, digitizing them, indexing them. And so I was at a workstation where I could use a keyword search and and these interviews segments would pop up and I could then listen and learn from the people who were there. And having just left Microsoft, I realized, oh, this is such a, a powerful use of technology. The Show Up project was using, at that point, mainframe technology. So each uh, computer processing unit cost over a million dollars. Their data storage was a multi-million dollar effort in itself. And then they were filming with actual analog tape. And so everything was really expensive. Having just left Microsoft, I realized we could do this all with digital technology and the emerging personal computer technology. And so I said, well, this is a really interesting moment because from a technology standpoint, digital technology had reached the point where a lot of this could be done much more cheaply. In 1996, the timing was ripe in so many ways. Um, The technology, digital technology was available. uh, That was much more inexpensive. Um, In terms of video recording, Digital video was just coming into the forefront. Yeah, I just uh, learned a lot from seeing what the Show Foundation was doing. And I also knew growing up in the Japanese American community, there were so many powerful stories that were still untold that I had maybe heard in these little snippets but never recorded by anyone. And so all those pieces were coming together in 1996, and that was the genesis of, of Densho. I mean, my experience has been that people did not want to talk about the camps other than, oh, I was there. <laughs> um, so, yeah, what, what was it that might have happened um, that might have helped people in, in speaking about it more? In 1988, President Reagan signed the Civil Liberties Act of 1988. And that act 
acknowledged that the U.S. government had made a mistake, apologized to Japanese Americans who were placed in camp, and also made a $20,000 payment to uh, individuals who were affected. The reason that was important, even though the community knew that what happened during World War II was an injustice and was wrong, the fact that they were placed in camps, there was still a lot of guilt and shame associated with the war years. Having the government officially apologized, I think, opened up the gates for people to more freely talk about this, that they didn't have to explain to people that was wrong. The government had already done that. And so it was just easier for people at that point to just tell their story rather than spending the time explaining to people why it was wrong. And so I think after 1988, we went from a phase in, in our community from what we call righting a wrong, um, getting the government to apologize, to after 1988, shifting to a phase of memorializing what happened, you know, to make sure we document the stories so that people deeply understood what happened, but that we would do this so it wouldn't happen to other people. And so that was the shift, and that's why in the 90s you have things like the Japanese American National Museum in Los Angeles. They start to emerge. You have a lot of other interpretive centers. You have you know, Manzanar National Historic Site with the National Park Service. They emerge. You have projects like Go For Broke National Education Center, getting the stories of World War II vets. That emerges. Dencho emerges. So you really get this interesting phase that the community really started to document and share the stories because now the energy could be placed on that. So was this started up by a group of people and they brought you in? If so, who are the group of people or how did this come, come about, this idea? So there was folks at the University of Washington, some folks with the Japanese American heritage groups in the city, and just a sense that you, these stories need to be collected. The original thinking was, let's produce a book or maybe a video about the story. And when I got involved and when I saw what um, the Steven Spielberg group had done, I said, it, it could be much larger. You know, what we can do is we can go out, capture these stories really well, do it once, and then these stories could be used over and over again. And this came in, in large part from my work at Microsoft, where I worked on you know, multimedia products like encyclopedias. And the hardest part of oftentimes of these products is to collect and get the rights to these primary source materials. And that's like 80% of the work is to get really good materials. You find it, you digitize it, and then you're able to use this in some of these products. And the thinking was, well, if you go to that work, let's put it into a repository so that in the future, authors, filmmakers, curriculum developers, and others can keep going back and tapping into this, this resource. And so that was the, the thinking behind the origins of Den Show, to do something that was never really done before. Because even the Showa project, in many ways, weren't thinking in terms of a digital repository. They were doing this, but they weren't making it accessible over the internet. And you know, 1996 was really the emergence of the World Wide Web at the same point. And so there was all these factors coming in. We thought, well, not only would we digitize them, but we would put them on the Internet, and then they would be available anywhere in the world. And furthermore, back then, the Internet was pretty much you know, mostly text and a few images. We knew with streaming video technology that within years, 
that people would have access to video too. So that led us to believe, let's do video because that's going to be a much more powerful way of communicating this. What's interesting is something that I learned at Microsoft um, doing some of these content products. The, the most exciting products and ideas come when you bring in different disciplines. And in so many ways, yeah, I think my technology background helped a lot. But actually getting in the room with historians, with social scientists, with counselors, with community people, and, and just to brainstorm what was going on. And so for me to hear from archivists and oral historians the power of the story and, and what that could do, to hear from historians the importance of history and of the interviews and how you might want to do that, to have counselors there talking about the healing aspects of interviews. So all those things were brought in at the very beginning. We spent months and months just talking about what we want to accomplish. And at the end, recognizing whatever we came up with and thought, in 20 years, people will be doing different things with what we collected because we can't even imagine what's going to happen in 20 years. And this was back in you know, 1995. So when we started the project and wanted to first um, do these oral histories, we first had to learn how to do this. And we didn't really know exactly how we are going to do this. So we, again, talked to lots of oral historians, research historians, and others, and counselors. And what we started doing was we essentially came up with our own training program to train about 10 people how to do interviews. But then the next question is, who do we interview? That what we heard from, especially from historians, was that oftentimes how history is viewed is from the place of victors or, or people in, in more power. And that we were cautioned not to just focus on, say, the, the male leaders of the community. That there were so many untold stories that, that generally history does not capture. And furthermore, they said, and be careful about aligning yourselves with certain institutions because what they'll do is they'll want you to interview people with that perspective. And so what we did, uh, we started in Seattle. We got the voting records from King County. We did a match between the last names of Japanese Americans who were incarcerated during World War II with these voting records so we can find matches there. And then we also looked at age range for anyone who would be old enough to be placed in the camps. From there, we drew a random sampling of 300 people. And then we contacted those 300 people to do a in-depth survey. And one of the questions we asked was whether or not they would be willing to be interviewed and whether or not they knew someone that we, they thought we should interview. And the reason we did this was we, we want to really go from a, a more of a grassroots community perspective of trying to get every possible story rather than going through some of the organizations like the, you know, the local chapter of the JCL, for instance, or the, the Nisei Veterans Committee. Because if we did that, we could almost anticipate who they would recommend. And so that allowed us to get, I think, uh, from the very beginning, different stories. And that gives you a sense of what we're trying to do. We're really trying to document the full community and you know, different ages to be sort of equal in terms of the gender split. And when you dive into the Japanese-American history, 
You have you know, young men who volunteered to fight in the army or who were drafted to fight in the army or military service uh, who resisted. And so there's all these different stories, and we wanted to make sure we, we try to capture all of them. So that's just grown. We, we use Seattle as our pilot phase, and we did about 100 interviews. And then from there, we started branching out to other parts of the West Coast, Hawaii, the Midwest, and East Coast. And now we have about 1,000 of these in-depth video-recorded oral histories to really document as well as possible, giving us a comprehensive view of what happened during World War II. You know, what sort of led us to what type of interviews to do more of actually came from historians. We then asked historians, like, so what are the stories that are really important and interesting? And that brought up things like, oh, you know, the, the resettlement of Japanese Americans, you know, they went from the West Coast to these camps, and then they were encouraged, uh, many Japanese Americans, not to return to the West Coast. And they end up in places like Denver or, or Chicago, Cleveland, and other places. And, and so historians saying, you know what, getting those stories are really interesting because what were their experiences off the West Coast? You already did Seattle, and so you have that experience. What was it like to relocate to Cleveland, for instance? So we started doing that. Then someone mentioned really getting the experiences of women in camp, especially those who you know, were raising kids or gave birth to children. And so, sure, we could just focus Seattle, but then we made that more of a national effort and, and put the word out. So then we started going to other communities. And then the scholars mentioned how during World War II, you know, after the camps and then when people resettled, there were so many Nihon Machis on the West Coast that just disappeared after World War II. And they would say, so what were the stories of these communities before? So we would, especially in California, go to these communities and try to find people who had some memories of what a place like Walnut Grove, California was like before the war. And that was surprising to me. I, I learned, I didn't really understand. You know, they had segregated schools for uh, Japanese and Chinese, segregated from whites in communities in California that I had not heard about. It's almost like Jim Crow laws on the West Coast affecting Asians that we learn about in the South that I didn't really understand. So it was, in some ways, the scholars were, were pointing us in different directions. Or they would say, oh, you have these camp experiences. And there were actually quite a few people from Hawaii who went to camps. And as families, you know, their stories are, are interesting. So we start doing those. So it, it just kept bubbling up. And oftentimes we would ask the question, so what are the untold stories? And oftentimes it would be a scholar or something who's researching a book and says, you know what, this is something that no one really knows about. And those oftentimes led us to do interviews. What are some of the particular stories that really stand out to you that were surprising or moving or shifted the way you thought about this demographic, this community that had been incarcerated during the war? When I started the project, I thought of myself more as this technologist, you know, someone who knew technology that could bring to bear my knowledge of pulling together these high-tech projects and using technology to bring these stories to a larger audience. You know, earlier I mentioned how we had to train ourselves to do interviews. 
And so I joined that training program. I trained myself to be an oral history interviewer. And after going through that, I really shifted gears. Today, I don't think of myself as a technologist anymore. I think of myself as a public historian, as an oral historian, because ever since I took that training, I fell in love with the stories and doing the interviews in particular. So after early on, as we did interviews, we would bring the video recordings, and as a group, we would watch them together. And that's how we learned about not only the history, but about techniques like, oh, that would have been great to ask that question. And there was one interview in particular that I remember early on. And when I saw the video, I recognized him immediately because he was one of my high school teachers. I went to Franklin High School in the Rainier Valley, and Frank Fuji, who was the art teacher at Franklin High School, was also the basketball coach. And so I knew him more as the um, Franklin High School basketball coach. He won the Metro Championship, so he was well-known there. But he was also known as this really upbeat, positive guy, always with a funny story. And his classroom, which was kind of like an art studio, was oftentimes a meeting place for students after school. We'd all hang out there, and Frank would be there and doing his artwork or students doing artwork, but just you know telling stories. And so I knew him as this sort of you know community person, but this really upbeat, fun person to be around. And we had done his story. I didn't really know his story that well. And he described how his father, who was a community leader, was picked up on, I think, the day after December 7th, 1941, and taken by the FBI and, and placed in Department of Justice internment camps. And Frank, at that point, was, oh, about 12 years old. And I think it was right before he went through puberty, so he was small. And he was separated from his father for about three years. So uh, so Frank went to the Tule Lake concentration camp. His dad you know, went through a series of Department of Justice internment camps. And after three years, his father was finally released from the Department of Justice camp and then sent back to be with the family at Tule Lake. And Frank is telling the story. And then he says, oh, so dad's coming back. And as he's telling the story, it reminded me of almost getting ready for one of Frank's funny stories. He's going to tell a funny story about his dad returning, I, I thought. And so he talked about how his dad you know, came back, and yeah, he looks a lot thinner, more tired, much older. I think his hair had turned white. And he came to the uh, family barrack apartment, and friends and family were there. And he talked about how his, how his father would go around the room and, and just sort of smile and acknowledge the people in the room. And he would go around, and when he came to Frank, he looked at Frank and said, and who's this boy? You know, I still get moved when I hear this because as Frank was telling the story, I mean, he, was, he, he had his, his, his smiling face. But at that point when he said, who's this boy, you, you could see his face just, you know, just crumble and tears come to his eyes because you, you, you recognize how difficult it was. And he's telling this story like 70 years after the fact, and you could still see the trauma that that caused, that separation for him to have his father not even recognize him. Because Frank said, you know, he had grown like four or five inches and he had become a young man and his father didn't recognize him.
and Frank afterwards, I, I talked with him, and he was so thankful that he was able to tell his story because in many ways by sharing that story, it helped him just heal, you know, recognizing that pain because in many ways his happy-go-lucky demeanor, I think, was a shield for you know, lots of the pain that happened. And I think ever since then, Frank has, has told me he's told that story more and more. And I think that's helped others also. But it's stories like that with people that I grew up with, I knew in the community, and yet I didn't know them. And this project, these interviews, allow them to share stories that in many ways were just sort of hidden and and not shared until we start asking these questions. So as an an opportunity for for some of these feelings and what had been held inside to be metabolized, I find it really interesting that you were talking with counselors as you were getting prepared to interview people. So was there some kind of thing that someone told you, you know, this is how you can help? Yeah, as we were preparing to do these interviews, there was this concern that we might be opening up this emotional trauma and would we be able to handle that? Were we equipped to do that? On staff, we uh, had a psychologist. He was uh, also a professor who was taking a sabbatical to work with us. And so we were in some ways ready. If something came up, we said, oh, well, you know, we would you know, have a psychologist who could help us walk through these things. We had other counselors who could help us. We let the interviewers know that if you're in a situation where you're not comfortable with, right away let us know. But what we found, and this was a surprise. I mean, we were there uh, first when I, when I first started the project. I said, you know, documenting the history is probably the most important thing we can do and make sure it's going to be around for generations. And that's the name of Den Show, you know, to pass stories on to future generations. But... What I've come to realize, it's really the healing aspects. And going back to the Frank Fuji story, by him sharing that, I could tell from that interview and talking to him afterwards, it was really like a weight was lifted off their shoulders, that this pain by sharing it helped him process and heal from it. And not just the person we interviewed. It was really frequent, and to this day I still get this, I will get an email or a phone call from a family member of someone I've interviewed or someone else on staff has, has interviewed. And people would say, wow, what, what happened in that interview? Grandma or mom or dad or grandpa, they're different. They're so much lighter. They're so much freer. They're now sharing stories I've never heard before. It's like something really big happened during that interview that they're now talking about things that were at one point too painful to share that they're now talking about, and they seem so much lighter. And you would see this from a family perspective. And now having done this in Seattle with hundreds of, of people, I think it actually impacts the whole community. I think as you start sharing these stories and people know it's okay to tell them, not just okay, but we honor these stories. We cherish them. We're going to preserve them. They're so important to learn from that not only the individuals and families, but we see the community healing from all this. And that was really important. And that probably is the most surprising thing from doing this project. Are there takeaways? You know, another takeaway as we start doing the interviews 
was we realized we had to also broaden who we interviewed. I, I mentioned the Japanese Americans who were in the camps, and, and we had that perspective. But very shortly we realized, oh, it would really be interesting to interview others. For instance, what if you were a neighbor of a Japanese American and you saw them taken away? What was their perspective? Or if they were a guard in a camp, what were they thinking once they got to know these people? So we started interviewing other, other people. So as we looked to interview other people, especially who knew the Japanese American community, I interviewed Bob Santos. I knew him as Uncle Bob and knew him in the community. But as I talked to him, he said, oh, yeah, he grew up with Japanese Americans. Um, he went to school with them. He went to Marino, which was, he said, 90% Japanese Americans, and then I think maybe it was an African American and a couple of Filipino Americans. And so it was really interesting to get his perspective. Because when I interview Japanese Americans about what happened during World War II, they talk about being removed from uh, you know, the community and that places like Nihonmachi, the International District, they thought, oh, it became a ghost town. We were all removed, and so nothing happened. And so I interviewed Bob Santos, who, as a Filipino-American, you know, wasn't removed. And he talked about, yeah, one of the saddest days of his life was uh, when all his classmates just left. And so they had to shut down the school, and he had to go someplace else. But then he also talked about, with some wonderment, how the international district changed because he said, no, it didn't become a ghost town. What happened, he talked about, was how the military came in and started leasing several of the hotels. And so it became a place where a lot of servicemen would stay. And with that, he said every block, almost every building, had drinking, gambling. And he said the international district became this incredible place where people were partying just nonstop. And so it became, from his perspective as a boy, this, this whole different place. And so it was really interesting to get a different perspective. But yet he understood how wrong it was, but he can give this whole different perspective of the wartime experience from someone outside the community to see his friends leave, but then to see things that Japanese Americans couldn't see. And so that's why it was important for us to, to interview other people. How do you see this project and the interviews that you've done speaking to society maybe in a different way today? You know, after we did interviews and started showing them to the community, very quickly teachers came to us and say, oh, these, these are really important from an educational standpoint. You know, not only do we, but students also need to see these stories. And so we started developing educational curriculum. We looked at sort of the causes of what happened to Japanese Americans, you know, looking at how the media and politicians use negative rhetoric against them, how they're painted as this dangerous force that couldn't be trusted. And so in times of war, we have to be afraid of them. And all, all these factors led to the World War II incarceration. So we've developed curriculum. I've trained thousands of teachers talking about the causes. And it was about three years ago, during the last cycle of presidential elections, that we started hearing very similar negative rhetoric coming from, in particular, the, the candidate Donald Trump, where he would talk about Mexicans as being murderers and rapists, or he would talk about Muslims a certain way. 
And I remember back then writing about this, oh, let's not let this happen again. What we're hearing from some of these candidates are not helpful. In fact, they sort of remind me of what happened to like the Jews in Europe or Japanese Americans during World War II. And so the last three years, I've watched this progression of negative uh, rhetoric to actually policy decisions um, to more recently these concentration camps for migrant refugees coming from the, our southern border. And as I watch this, because of the knowledge I have, because I've heard so many stories, and because I know the trauma that has happened you know, to our community by being placed in these camps, you know, doing nothing wrong, you're placed there. And people say, oh, it doesn't matter, they'll survive. But I know that trauma will, will exist. So as I see this, um, there was one incident in, in particular this last summer. I read this, this small news report that the government was planning to open a new refugee camp for just children. As they were being separated from their families at the border, they had to have a place to put them. So they're going to place them in this camp called Fort Sill, Oklahoma. And that popped out right away because Fort Sill, Oklahoma was also the location of one of the military internment camps that held uh, you know, Japanese immigrant men during World War II. And the reason I knew that was oh, about 10 years ago, I interviewed this elderly man in Kona, Hawaii, who told me about his father, who was a community leader. His father owned three businesses, had 13 children. And because uh, he was a community leader, the FBI picked him up again the day after December 7, 1941, and placed them in internment camps. And he eventually was detained at the Fort Sill, Oklahoma camp there. And this man from Kona proceeded to tell me about how his father, under the stress of being there and being away from his family and businesses, sort of mentally snapped and started mumbling that he needed to go home. And so he actually you know, walked to the fence and start climbing it, saying, even though he's thousands and thousands of miles away, saying, I have to go home, I have to go home. And while that was going on, you know, the guards would start rustling and, and getting their guns out. You know, the other Japanese there were all saying, don't do anything. He's, he's gone crazy. He's not going to harm anyone. He's going to be okay. Whereupon one of the, the guards went up to the back of Mr. Oshima and shot him in the back of the head and killed him. And so as this son in Kona told me the story, you could see, again, the trauma for him, even though he wasn't there in camp, this family separation and what happened at this internment camp. So when I heard that the government was going to open a new camp at Fort Sill for these children refugees, something in me said, I have to do more than just write about and speak about what happened. So I went to Fort Sill, and there was a group called Sudu for Solidarity that was organizing a protest. So I joined that protest, and uh, along with six Japanese Americans who were children in camp during World War II, along with about a dozen other Japanese Americans, we, we protested and were willing to be arrested. And so when you know the story and you know what happened to the community, it's important for me to now do more, that at this point I feel like I can't just sit back and be kind of analytical and objective and talking about the consequences of this and how we have to be careful about this and here are the lessons. 
I do that, but I also have to, I think, morally also try to stop this. And that's what is happening this year. And that's all from really understanding and listening to these stories. Yeah, when I think about all the information we're getting about what's happening in our country, and I think about the news, you see these news releases, it was really the the stories that made a difference. And the reason was when, when people really share what happened and you sit across from them, and not only here, but you could see the pain, the suffering that they went through, and how it still is with them 70 years, 80 years later. It, it opens up something inside you. You know, that pain and suffering, if you really get connected to it, and I think these stories are, are really powerful in doing that, it opens up this, this compassion, not only for the person who's telling the story, but compassion for anyone else who would go through a similar thing. And, and that's what compelled me. You know, when I returned from Fort Sill and told my wife what you know, happened, and I broke down and just started crying, sobbing. And she's never seen me do that before. And what I realized was I was so emotional about you know, this combination of hearing so many stories about the suffering within Japanese-American community in terms of what happened, and then understanding that same suffering is going on now. And that just impacted me more. It was more than I could... I can describe in terms of how painful I felt, but how much I felt for what's going on in our country today and and why it needs to stop. But how do you see it also playing out among Japanese-American families, young and old? You know, what I'm really getting, as I go around different parts of the country and I share what Densho's doing, the stories, but the impact of the stories on me and my being compelled being activated to do something. I I realize, I mean, it's really clear, I'm not alone. There are so many people in the Japanese-American community who feel the same way. And it ranges from my 90-year-old parents to baby boomer sanseis, who are the children of people who are in the camps, to millennials and to even younger, to high school students today. And there is this deep emotional connection to not only what happened to our community during World War II, it's almost emerging or coming out because of what's happening in the country today. We are being awakened because of the similarities. And it's not this mental, analytical thing. It's, It's a very heartfelt feeling that I'm seeing in the community that is getting people to get out of their homes, off their couches, to actually protest which when I think of the Japanese-American community, I don't think of our community as one that generally goes out there with signs and protest and to do civil disobedience. But now I'm seeing that more and more. So what's happening has really struck a chord to many in the community. So is this something that people have held inside and now with what's going on in the world and uh, what's happening at the border and so forth, things are shifting? Or how do you see that? You know, the sharing of these stories, I, I think it's just a, it's like it's like an onion and you, you keep peeling back layers. There's an example during just this season. I'm sitting with my mom and her brother and there was a story from their family that 
It was never really shared. Their older brother volunteered from the Mandoka concentration camp to fight in the uh, military. And he was an ROTC student at the University of Washington, and he served with the 100th Battalion, a staff sergeant, and was killed in action in Italy. And the impact on the family was huge. Part of it was um, when my mom's older brother, my uncle, volunteered. He actually failed the physical because of there's some kind of kidney ailment. And my grandmother gave her son, because he was disappointed, an herbal remedy. So he was able that day to retake the physical and pass. And so he passed and then served. And then when he was killed in action, and this is all being told to me now for the very first time. This was questions I'd asked my mom and uncle years ago, but they weren't able to tell me. She told me for the first time what happened when her parents were informed that their eldest son was, was killed. And it was so painful because at that moment, her father, my grandfather, turned to his wife and said, you killed our son. You, you can only imagine the pain that must have gone through. But some of these stories are just so painful. And even though I've been doing Densho for you know, 24 years and have interviewed my father, my mom would never talk. And so it is kind of this gradual process that it's not that people won't ever talk, but some stories are just so difficult, so painful that it just takes, it takes longer. And so these stories are, I know, as hard as they are. My mom was sharing it. And I think the situation on the southern border you know, has led to discussions about what's happening in our country today and, and some of the things happening. And those have provided opportunities to actually re-ask some of these questions that come up. And so it is like getting more pieces to you know, not only Japanese American history, but in my case, my, my family's history. Is there anything else that you would want to share? Yeah, I, as you could tell, I feel like I'm very much in the thick of things, not only with the Japanese-American story, but what's happening in our country today. The, the thing that I really get, I, I think about my career and how it started off in high-tech and more business, and that has served me well in terms of doing various projects. But I think the, the big takeaway I get is these connections with other human beings and uh, you know, stories and to really get both ways. I mean, the, the person sharing the story, but it's such a gift to listen to another person's story and to really honor that story. And it's through these connections, whether it's in the family or community or just even strangers, I think we're losing touch with as a society. And the more we can do this, I think that is going to be what helps heal and bring our society, our country back together again. It's going to be these personal stories that I think are going to be so, so important. That was Tommy Keda, founding executive director of the Densho Project, speaking with KBCS's Yuko Kadama at the Densho Project offices in Seattle.